All right, so as we um, are going to be studying through Mark 2, 1 to 12, if you're not there, go ahead and turn back there so that you're ready to go as we walk through the passage. But I want to just ask a question and have you think about it a little bit before we dive in. Is suffering and sickness tied to sin? Is suffering, sickness, could add disability? Is it tied to sin? So Bill said sometimes, yeah. So certainly we don't want to be Job's friends, do we? Um, Sadly, that company continues throughout the ages. Um, Maybe we know our Bible well enough to understand that that is not the ditch we want to fall off the horse and fall into, where if you're suffering, oh, you must have done something to deserve this. So let's find out what's behind door number three. And Job is saying, there's nothing, I'm not perfect, but there's nothing behind door number three. In fact, the beginning of Job says that he was blameless, he was righteous. So it's not always tied to sin, right? You have Jesus in John 9, and his disciples They see this man who was born blind, and according to their, Job's friends, theology and logic, wait a second, he was born blind, so whose fault was that? Was it his parents? Did he sin in utero? (laughs) Do you see? Like, if that's the theology, then you've got to figure out the logic. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is so that the work of God will be put on display because of his intention to heal the man born blind. Who'd ever heard of that happening so that Jesus would get glory and who he was and his power would be put on display? But there are texts where sickness and suffering can be a result of sin. Do you remember David in Psalm 32? which it's possible that the David and Bathsheba scenario is behind that. You know, he was not forthcoming with his sin until Nathan the prophet can, you know, told a creative story and convicted him of his sin. And he said that his bones dried up like he was suffering physically because he wasn't dealing with his sin. There's more text than that. Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them when they lied to the Holy Spirit? They're killed. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, there's a really crazy passage in there about some of you are sick because of your sin. Because you're not, like, dealing with it. So sometimes it can be a result of sin. So here's what we could say, I guess, big picture, and we'll have some help here in Mark 2 as well. But if we were to try to address this question at at a big picture level, we could certainly be way more comprehensive than I'm going to be here. All suffering and sickness is a result of capital S. Am I doing that right? Backwards? Capital S sin, right? Because this world is broken because of the first sin. So all brokenness, all sin, all suffering is a result of the first sin and the brokenness of the world that ensued. And some sin is a result of I'm sorry, some suffering is a result of sin, 
but certainly not all. There are righteous sufferers. They're innocent. Again, not meaning that there are people without sin, but there are victims that are suffering not a result of their sin, but a result of someone else's sin. And certainly there are, there's brokenness that comes in just because we're born into a broken world. So disease and disability and deformity and all kinds of issues like that. So we need to be wise. Yes, the answer is sometimes. And then we can unpack that a little bit. So um, like I said, Mark 2 gives us some help with this question as well. All right? So last week we looked at the authority of Jesus that was really in focus. Um, we looked at the end of chapter 1, verses 21 to 45, and we saw Jesus' authority was revealed in his teaching. He, he was teaching with authority, not like the scribes. His authority over demons, his authority over disease. And in this passage, his authority to forgive sins is going to be highlighted. In the larger section of chapter 2 to 3.12, chapter 2, verse 1 to 3.12, Jesus' authority is in focus, and it ends up clashing with the authorities, the religious authorities, primarily the Pharisees, but also the scribes and the Herodians. So we're going to see Jesus' authority, because this is all about his identity, right? Identity and mission in the Gospel of Mark. The first half focuses primarily on his identity, the second half on his mission to die, and so this section, his authority is being revealed and it's clashing with the authority. So last week, we saw that Jesus had to withdraw from public ministry because he healed that leper and he told the leper, hey, don't tell anyone, just go to the priest and you know, do what you're supposed to do according to the law. And the, pre the leper, the healed leper just told everybody. So Jesus had to withdraw because of the crowds. He was just getting mobbed. So now... In chapter 2, he's back in public, as it were, and he's swarmed again. He's preaching the word here in chapter 2 in this home. Um, so, first point, through the roof. Mark 2, 1 to 4. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, we know that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. It's likely that this is Peter's house, which was referred to in chapter 1, verse 29. So um, most likely he's living with Peter and his family. Um, so he's at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Remember, this is why I came. Chapter 1, verses 30, verse 38, he said, you know, let's go to these other villages because I need to preach the word there. That's why I came. And they came, they probably meaning a group of more than four people with this paralytic, but it only took four to carry the paralytic. So they, this group, came bringing to him, bringing to Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So, <clears throat> most of us are probably not too familiar with ancient, ancient Near Eastern home architecture, okay? But houses were typically one story. They had flat roofs that functioned a lot like decks in our day, 
okay? So it's a little extra space to get you out of the house, but still intentional, usable space. So some people would work up there, they would dry laundry up there, they would eat up there, sometimes sleep up there. And these, the second level, the roof, was accessed by an outside staircase, okay? Archaeology's kind of confirmed this and shown that it's the case. Um, so you can imagine it would get a bit dank, you know, inside those houses at the time, probably not much in the way of windows, and if you did have them, they would be small, and anyway. So it wouldn't take much to make it too crowded to enter. So this group could not get close to Jesus. The crowd's getting in the way. Um, interestingly, commentator James Edwards writes this, the single most common attribute of, cr of a crowd in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. Thus, despite Jesus' popularity, crowds are not a measure of success. But these folks that brought this paralytic, they're not going to give up that easily. Um, and so they get up on the roof. And listen, the roof was load-bearing. People ate up there. They slept up there. They did some work up there. They did, you know, like, this is load-bearing. So it took some work, some digging. In fact, the Greek kind of implies this digging work that they had to do. So, like, what in the world is going on? Like, if you were in the house, what would this have been like? You know, initially, some dust starts falling, and what's going on up there? What are they doing? What happened when the light broke through and stuff starts falling down on top of people? Like, did Jesus stop teaching? Did people start yelling as the debris starts falling? What about the homeowners? Like, let's say it's Peter and, you know, his wife and mother-in-law lives in the house, and did they start freaking out? Like, our roof, you know, like I just laid those mud tiles last October, you know, like we don't know. Mark is this master storyteller, but he leaves us in the dark, in the dark on, you know, many of our curiosities. So who knows if the homeowners were through the roof at these guys digging a huge hole through the roof, just making sure you're awake. Um, but that's not the point. So point number two is the point, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Again, we don't know exactly how this like went down. Like, was there a record scratch right here? <laughs> are you tracking with me? Your sins are forgiven. But before we get to the main point here, son, your sins are forgiven, we should note this phrase, when Jesus saw their faith. Did you see that right at the beginning of verse 5? Whose faith? Their faith. That's more than one person. The paralytic? Well, maybe. Certainly the friends. The friends who let their friend down through the roof. Probably includes the paralytic. It's unlikely that he was taken to Jesus against his will, right? So their faith in Jesus was visible. It was obvious when Jesus saw their faith. So faith in Mark's gospel right here is recorded as action. And this is faith in action. Okay, so faith is not just knowledge of and assent to facts about Jesus. Yes, of course we need to believe things about Jesus. 
But it's more than that. Real faith works. It's active. It goes public, you could say. You can read the book of James, and that point is repeated over and over. So there's a lesson about discipleship here that we shouldn't miss. Also, this is a real encouragement to bring others to the throne of grace, isn't it? The faith of the friends led to the healing of the paralytic. This is active intercession on behalf of a needy friend. That's not the only time in the Gospels, right? So, I mean, just in Mark, later on, we're going to see the father who asks Jesus to heal his daughter, chapter 5. The Syrophoenician woman who begs Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter in chapter 7. I mean, these are strong encouragements to bring the needs of our friends, our brothers and sisters, our family members to the feet of Jesus, to the throne of grace. Intercessory prayer is faith in action. It's active faith. And hey, little plug, shameless, join us on Wednesday nights. It's what we do. Intercession. Seven to eight, right there in that room. This Wednesday. Now back to verse five. Was there a record scratch moment here? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, I mean, what are you expecting? Rise, take up your what? your mat and walk. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, don't you wish Mark had recorded the reaction of the paralytic and the friends? I mean, did they get annoyed? Was the paralytic disappointed? We don't know. Did they get quiet because maybe the friends perceived that there was more going on here than they expected? Was the paralytic thinking, that's not why I came. I've got a more pressing problem. Like, I'm paralyzed for crying out loud. Don't you see? Or did sweet relief flow? Because the common conception was like that of Job's friends. So whether it was perceived or maybe it was real, maybe it was a result of his sins that he was paralyzed. And maybe he beat himself up every day since. He could have felt cursed on account of his sins. That would have been the worldview that was dominant at the time and thus disabled it's because he's cursed, because of his sins. You know, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? So we have enough disdain for Job's friends that we naturally separate sin and suffering. They likely would not have had that same separation in their minds. So rather than being disappointed here, there could have been some deep relief. But again, we don't know. We can't know. But it is noteworthy that Jesus focuses first on the sins. So it seems that Jesus is helping the paralytic and the friends and the crowds that he's teaching and us learn a deep truth about our deepest need. What is your deepest need? What is my deepest need? Like, what is your individually? I'm, you know, it's not just in the abstract, hold it out at arm's length. What is your, what is my deepest need? How would you answer that? Maybe you know the right answer, but is that the functional answer on a regular basis? Like, so Tim Keller shines a spotlight on, on this 
I think this is really helpful. A little bit longer quote, but you'll see. I think it's worth quoting it. Jesus is saying to him, I understand your problems. I have seen your suffering. I'm going to get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's his sin. That can be offensive, especially if you have or are undergoing deep suffering. He goes on. Jesus is confronting the paralytic with his main problem by driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking for only your body to be healed, you are not going deep enough. You have underestimated the depths of your longings, the longings of your heart. Everyone who's paralyzed naturally wants with every fiber of his being to walk. In his heart, he's almost surely saying, if only I could walk again, then I would be set for life. If only I could walk, then everything would be right. And Jesus is saying, my son, you're mistaken. That may sound harsh, but it's profoundly true. Jesus says, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll feel you'll never be unhappy again. But wait two months, four months, the euphoria won't last. The roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. We all have our if-onlys, don't we? If only, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. If only I could dot, 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 what is it for you? If only I had, if only this was different, if only that was different. And see, this is why we actually fall for substitute saviors. Functional, street-level substitute saviors on a regular basis. So yesterday, um, I did just a portion, don't give me too much credit here, just a portion of the Green Beret ruck walk, like the last leg. Um, So drove down to Lewis Firehouse and, you know, parked there and then caught the group on the fourth leg, fifth leg. Um, It's like 52 miles, so it was the fifth leg of this walk. And obviously want to support Adam and the Green Beret Project, but also I'm thinking, you know, some of the people that are walking this thing, I know them, building relationships with them, and what a great opportunity to have conversations, deeper conversations, and hopefully talk about the Lord. So I'm praying that the Lord will, you know, match me up with the right folks, and there's this you know, guy from the gym that coaches there, and I thought maybe it would be him, and I get to the thing, and they're there, so maybe I should walk with them, and, you know, this dude's in really good shape, but I mean, at this point, like, your feet are so blistered up, they're going like this, should I just stick with them the whole time, or I was going to catch up to Adam, just run to them, because there was another guy that I wanted to talk to, so I start running, and there's this lone guy, and it's obvious, you know, backpack, and somebody waddling, you know they're a part of this thing, um, and they're on the tail end of it. So I stop and spent the rest of the time with this guy, young guy. Um, and lots of reasons to, to see that I won't go into all of them that I think God wanted me to talk with this guy. 
Um, so we had a really good talk all over the place. Certainly sp- talked about Jesus a couple times. I've been reading Bible passages to him, and he appreciated it, like welcomed it, you know, read the parable of the lost sons and this passage, and anyway. So it, early on in the conversation, I was just trying to get to know him and, and how did you get into fitness? Because obviously he's a pretty fit guy. And he said, well, actually, I used to be just like, all my spare time was, to, was given over to gaming. And so I would come home from school and just go in my room till late at night. And um, it's pretty dormant, you know, like, so he got into exercise in 10th grade. A friend of his just kind of pulled him into that and, you know, it stuck. Great. Okay. So I was trying to understand why he inclined so much toward gaming. And so I said, what was the motivation there? You know, for some people, it's one thing. Other people, it's another thing. Sometimes it's the community. And so I asked him if it was that. And he said, actually, not really so much that. It was just that it was a way to kind of avoid and escape from the anxiety and the burdens. So, okay, wow, that's good that you realized that. And, you know, so I said, I... I, shared with him this concept of functional saviors. Because we can all run to something. So some people, it's gaming. Some people, it can be, you know, substances. Some people, it can be sleep. Some people, it can be work. Just drown the anxieties and the fears and the whatever in other things. So anyway, functional saviors to escape the burden and the anxiety. So if only, and if our desire isn't deep enough, then the if onlys, we try to line up some functional savior to give us what we want, to free us from some lowercase h hell that we want to avoid and usher us into some lowercase h heaven that seems like it's going to be the place of satisfaction. Does this make sense? Tracking here? So if I'm lonely, I want to avoid loneliness hell. I want to get into relational heaven. And sometimes you can kind of lock on to someone and idolize them. Does that make sense? This can happen. I want to be out of poverty hell and into security, financial security heaven. And so some people play the lottery. Some people might gamble. Some people might be workaholics. Do you see, you see what's going on here? This is lots of ways that dynamic can get worked out. But again, you're not going deep enough. Because none of those things will ultimately satisfy you. So Keller goes on to say this. You were looking to that thing to save you, this is the next quote on there. Yep, there we go. You were looking to that thing to save you from oblivion, from disillusionment, from mediocrity, or again, you can fill in the blank. You've made that wish into your savior. You never use that term, of course, but that's what's happening. And if you never quite get it, you're angry, unhappy, empty. But if you do get it, it's not happily ever after you ultimately feel more empty, more unhappy. You've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it into your Savior, and now that you finally have it, it's turned on you. So if you don't get it, you're not satisfied. If you do get it, you're not ultimately going to be satisfied. 
because you're not going deep enough. We thought if we just got a little bit of help, we could save ourselves. But we learned that Jesus wanted to take us deeper, to go all the way to our heart and reconfigure the main thing that our heart wanted. You see, it wasn't our deepest wish itself that was the problem, just as it wasn't wrong for the paralytic to want to walk. The fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, would save us, that was the problem. We had to let Jesus be our Savior. So Jesus is not merely a means to meet your felt needs. Okay, some people come to Jesus thinking, well, he'll fix my marriage because that's the biggest problem. And then if he doesn't fix the marriage or if the marriage gets fixed but, you know, other things go wrong, then you... You know, if more suffering comes, like, well, I didn't sign up for this. I thought I, thought I was going to have an abundant life. According to my definition, if I come to Jesus. And then they bail. Because they just wanted to use Jesus as a means to get what they really wanted. No, 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 no. Jesus is not a means. He is your end. He is the object of your deepest need. He's not a tool to get what we really want. He is our soul's deepest need. He is our treasure. So he wants to teach us about first and second things here in Mark 2. So by speaking first of forgiveness, Jesus shows the paralytic and everyone there and us what our greatest need is. It's for forgiveness so that we can be reconciled to God who is the only one that can satisfy our soul. You know, like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. So he addresses first his greatest problem. And that's the same for all of us as well. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen human beings. We can all have very real, very significant problems, health issues, relational problems, emotional pain, financial problems, job-related issues. Like, so much goes wrong in this world, right? Prayed about it. Like, how long, oh Lord, this world is a wreck and a mess on the news, in our lives, so much pain. But our deepest problem is not out there. Our deepest problem is in here. No matter the good we've done, no matter what's been done to us, at the end of the day, listen, we all have the blood of Jesus on our hands. If we have the blood of Jesus on our hands, we've got a problem. Unless the blood of Jesus also covers the blood of Jesus on our hands. Thus dealing with our deepest problem. So Jesus is showing us this profound truth here of all the things we think we need, of all the good things we desire, our greatest need because of our deepest problem is forgiveness of sin so we can be reconciled to God and have peace with him and a personal loving relationship with him now and forever. And only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins, which is why this is so shocking and why the scribes react the way that they did. So point number three, who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, again, this is like crazy stuff here. In, in, in 2 Samuel 12, you remember when Nathan confronted David? Um, after David acknowledged his sin, David did declare, I'm sorry, Nathan did declare that David's sins were forgiven. Okay, but that was on behalf of God. And he says it that way. He says it like this, Yahweh has put away your sin, you shall not die. So he doesn't forgive sin on his own authority. Um, but that's what Jesus does here. Okay, he declares forgiveness on his own authority, which is to take the place of God because only God can forgive sin. So this is so shocking and provocative to us. John, what's wrong with you? That's disrespectful, but I'll forgive you. Okay. <laughs> Again, making sure you're all awake. So Johnny was really nervous about that. Like, he would never do that. And this was Phil's idea. I was just going to, like, create. I was just going to, like, kind of tell a story. And on Wednesday night when we're talking, I was meeting with the worship team, talking about this passage. And Phil says afterwards, like, one time I was teaching on that, and I had Jude Meyer come up and slap me. And then somebody else, whoever it was, you know, forgive that person. Like, Wait a second. What, what would I say if that actually happened? If he slapped me, sinning against me, dishonoring me, whatever, and then somebody else comes and says, oh, I forgive you. I'm like, um, excuse me, that sin was against me? That would be my prerogative to forgive if I so choose. Thank you very much. And you're doing all the weeding this afternoon. <laughs> um, so... Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now, again, this, this guy came from a ways away with his friends, and so, so we can't pull all of those people that he sinned against into the picture, but only God can forgive sins. I mean, again, this is shocking. That's why they're thinking in their heads, like, what is this guy? Who does he think he is? So at one level, yes, we as human beings can forgive someone who sins against us, but Jesus is forgiving all of his sins as if all of his sins were against Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ding, 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 ding. Exactly. It's only true for God. Only God can forgive sins. So we all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. All of our sins are ultimately against God, and Jesus is God in the flesh. We all have the blood of Jesus on our hands. I mean, if you need some help with this, like if it's hard to comprehend, the Ten Commandments, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If you commit any sin, you've already broken, have no other gods before me which is the negative way of saying love God with all your heart and soul, mind, strength, right? Which is, yeah, uh, I won't go down that rabbit trail. Okay, um, so this is why he, Jesus, has the right to forgive. This is why he must be the one to forgive. So in the broader context, the authority of Jesus, remember, is in focus. 
and his authority is challenging the, authorities of the, the authority of the scribes. I mean, they consider themselves, they were the guardians of the teaching office, you know, in the synagogue and among the people. So who does this man think he is? Speaking for God with forgiveness of sins. But Jesus, I mean, he's not granting forgiveness on behalf of another. He's not saying God forgives you. He's actually doing the forgiveness on the spot. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knew that the sins of the paralytic, he, he knew the sins of the paralytic, I should say, and he also knew the thoughts of the scribes. And so he responds in verse eight, point number four, which is easier? Look at verse eight. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Have you ever thought about how effective it was for Jesus to pose this as a question? It's not a simple question. Which is easier? <laughs> it might be helpful to realize that it's a different question than which is easier to do? Forgive sins or heal this guy? He said, which is easier, to say this or to say that? Because actually the harder thing is forgive sins. But the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven because there's no way to verify if it's actually happened or not. But if you say, rise, pick up your mat and walk, if it doesn't happen, you immediately get called on the carpet for being a huckster. You know, it's obvious that you don't have the power that you claim to have. So, which is easier to say? <laughs> it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And so the healing then is a sign that the bigger deal issue, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's the key point. Verse 10 is the key point of this passage. Jesus is the son of man and he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is the son of man. This is the first time that that title is used in Mark's gospel account, but it's certainly not gonna be the last. <clears throat> and if you're not familiar with what this alludes to, you need to see it. And even if you are familiar, it's good to review this. And it adds to the weight, the gravity of this moment of what Jesus is saying. So the Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel 7. Okay, so it'll be up on the screen here. If you want to flip there, you can. So the prophet Daniel had these night visions, and this is what he saw, beginning in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days... God took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened, and the kingdoms of this world are being judged. Now look down at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He looks human. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he's human. He's one like a son of man. But he's also the king of all peoples. The king of all nations, all languages and all people will serve this king and his rule and his kingdom will never end. That's what this title alludes to. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, has come. The kingdom of God is at hand, back in chapter 1. And he has authority on earth. See, you thought that forgiveness of sins was only the purview of heaven. Now, the king has come, and he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Like the whoa weight of this. So the healing of the paralytic is a sign that points to this greater reality. Again, the identity of Jesus is central here, and his authority being revealed. So identity, authority, center stage in this passage, and the response that his identity and authority should elicit are also what we should see. So we've seen the authority of Jesus. We've seen his identity revealed. We see that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then also there's response that's worth seeing that is important to see. So we've already seen these four in their determination, even digging through the roof, to get to him. But point number five, authority and response. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So the healing points to the bigger issue the greater reality that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So listen, it's easy for us to just take this for granted. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. Like, hallelujah. We're not stuck in our sins. We're not left in our sins anymore. We're not left trying to atone for our own sins, our own guilt. We can be forgiven. So the crowd is amazed here. They glorify God. That's certainly the right response when Jesus reveals his power and glory and who he is. And here, 
The same crowd that wouldn't part for the paralytic to come in when he was being carried helplessly, you know, on his bed. He's not, that crowd is now parting willingly as he walks out, all because they're impressed at what Jesus has done. If, if we zoom out a little bit, let's not forget the real illustration of faith in this passage. So I want to go back to the faith of those friends, okay? It is the plucky faith of those friends, It's that faith that goes public in determined action. Plucky. We don't use that very often. You know what that means? Um, It's like showing courage, you know, determination and spirit, you know, in the face of tough circumstances. Um, In fact, one British, I I think he's British, because plucky is kind of like a British thing, isn't it? Okay, anyway, whatever. One commentator called them the plucky squad of four. I think that's pretty cool. Maybe I should have titled the message the plucky squad of four. Um... So their desperation trumped all other considerations. Like, how should we respond to this Jesus? We first want to just get our eyes on him, see his authority, see how he reveals himself, and just worship him and adore him and trust him. But what does this faith look like? What's our response supposed to be? Their desperation trumped all other considerations. They were determined to remove any obstacles necessary to get to Jesus even if they got to dig through the roof. I don't know about you, but I'm like, grow me in that, please, Lord. Holy pluckiness or determination. So James Edwards, another commentator that I'm reading regularly here, he says this, the first mention of faith, 2.5, in Mark significantly links it with acting rather than with knowing or feeling. Faith is active, I love this, faith is active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. It's like the same faith of Jacob, remember in that wrestling match through the night, when he said, I won't let go of you until you bless me. Like we need more of that. It's easy to kind of like, you know, like get like this spiritually. Because, you know, we've asked and sought and knocked and God hasn't answered and we're busy and we're tired and, you know, and like we lose our confidence in the one who says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Like, let's look again. Like, if we start to flag in our zeal, like if we start to slump our shoulders spiritually, we need to look at the authority of Jesus so that we have the determination, the active faith to say, wait a second, God's in the equation here for crying out loud. Like, he can do something. He can do more than we could ever ask or think. So a guy named Hugh Martin was (laughs) commenting, I've had plenty of verbal this morning. Okay, I'm getting there. Stick with me. Hugh Martin commenting on the church in Laodicea. He wrote this. Jesus loved the enthusiast, the man who knew what side he was on and threw himself wholeheartedly into the struggle. He liked energetic action, as in the men who climbed the roof and broke away through for their paralyzed friend, or in Zacchaeus who forgot his dignity and swarmed up a tree. He loved the generous giver, 
all four gospels quote is saying, he who loves life loses it, he who spends keeps. It sums up his attitude to life. He praised the man who banged on the door till he got an answer. Luke 11, you can look that up later. He wanted men to show that kind of determination in the affairs of religion. He praised the widow who badgered the unjust judge into doing justice, Luke 18. He did not like playing for safety or burying one's talent. It is the peacemakers rather than the peacekeepers whom he blesses. Goodness is a positive, active loyalty. Again, I don't know about you. I need to hear that. And I need some more plucky faith. Determined, like bang on the door. Isaiah says, give, give me no rest. Give him no rest until he causes his kingdom to come. So let's just close here by considering one final glimpse of the beauty of our Savior's authority and how he uses it. Okay? So we could call it like from blasphemy to blasphemy. You'll see why in a second. Or we could call it from here to the cross, like chapter 2 to the cross. Or we could call it how the shadow of the cross fell through the roof. The shadow of the cross is actually falling through the ceiling if you have eyes to see it. So the problem here is that Jesus is perceived to be blaspheming. And do you know why he was finally crucified? If you look ahead to Mark 14, 62, it's because he was accused of blasphemy. In fact, I think we have that text. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man, Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So the way to the cross is set all the way back in chapter 2. He knew how the scribes would react and the movements that he would set in motion with this encounter, claiming the authority to forgive sins. So they, what they're thinking, they're accusing him of like dispensing cheap grace, you know, like grace out of the Pez dispenser. Hey, your sins are forgiven and your sins are forgiven and your, wait, what right does he have to do this? No, 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 this is not cheap grace. And here's where the beauty of the authority is, right? Jesus alone knows how hard it is to say your sins are forgiven. Nobody knows how hard it is to forgive sins like Jesus. It is way costlier for him than for anyone So is he just going to be spiritually reckless or flippant? I mean, that's what the scribes are thinking, just dispensing forgiveness. Like, what right does he have? Oh, no. If there's anyone who knows the cost of free grace, it's Jesus. He knows what we really need, our deepest problem, our deepest need, and he's willing to pay the highest price in order to meet our deepest need to forgive us of our sins and to give us himself. So I'm going to close with another quote here by Tim Keller. And then if the musicians want to come on up, we're going to sing a little bit in response. 
So this closing quote, Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking. So he knows that if he begins to let on that he's not just a miracle worker, but also the savior of the world, they're eventually going to kill him. If he not only heals this man, but forgives his sins as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step down the path to his death. By taking that step, he's putting a down payment on our forgiveness. You see, at that moment, Jesus had the power to heal the man's body, just as he has the power to give you the things that you desire, career success, relationship, recognition, etc. Go ahead and fill in the blank. He actually has the power and authority to give each of us what we've been asking for on the spot, no questions asked. But Jesus knows that's not nearly deep enough. He knows that whether we're a paralyzed man lying on a mat or, again, fill in your situation, we don't need someone who can just grant our wishes. We need someone who can go deeper than that, someone who will lovingly and carefully pierce our self-centeredness and remove the sin that enslaves us and distorts even our beautiful longings. In short, we need to be forgiven. That's the only way for our discontent to be healed. It will take more than a miracle worker or a divine genie. It will take a savior. Jesus knows that to be our savior, he's going to have to die. And we will discover that in the process of dealing with what we thought were our deepest wishes, Jesus has revealed an even deeper truth, truer, even deeper, truer one beneath. It is for Jesus himself. He will not just have granted the tr that truest, deepest wish. He will have fulfilled it. Jesus is not going to play some rotten practical joke of giving you your deepest wish until he has shown you that it was for him all along. Amen. Let's sing.